Amen. Okay, all right, let's jump in. We are in the book of Acts, and we're going to find ourselves in chapter 26 tonight. Um, Before we do that, we'll do a little bit of a review. If we just, of course, we're looking at these maps and these missionary journeys. If we just close that in a little bit, we can see this region here, Jerusalem and Caesarea, is where pretty much most of these chapters from chapters 21 all the way through to 26 is just in this region. Uh, The journey really starts going to Rome. This journey takes place in chapter 27, and he finally gets to Rome in chapter 28. So we're in this little region between Jerusalem and Caesarea. We remember here in Miletus in chapter 20 is when Paul has his last meeting with the elders of the church in Ephesus. Uh, In that chapter, he says in verse 22, Now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city that chains and tribulations await me. So Paul knew, once again, going ahead, really not just to Jerusalem and not just to Rome, but all through his missionary journeys, he had that sense, that witness that he would be persecuted for, for, for the gospel's sake. So in chapter 21, in the next chapter, he finally makes it to Jerusalem. And we remember that he's accused in the temple, um, uh, and he, uh, the Jews are ready to stone him. In 28 of that chapter, uh, it says, This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. So these accusations are put against him, and um, there's basically almost a riot in the in the uh, in the courtyard there, and the commander sends his soldiers in, rescues or arrests Paul, if you like, um, and takes him away. As he's leaving, we remember going up the steps towards the the Antonia Fortress of the temple area. He's given the opportunity to turn around and share with the with the crowd, which is what he does. There in chapter 22, he addresses that Jewish mob, really, on the stairway. And once again, when he gets to the the word Gentiles, the crowd goes crazy. Lysias again takes him away, locks him up in in the barracks. And the next day, he stands before the Sanhedrin, which is chapter 23. In verse 11 of that chapter... It says, but the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, for as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness with, to me in Rome. So, and then he's brought to Caesarea. And of course, we've, these last few weeks, we've studied these chapters. Caesarea was effectively became the headquarters for the Roman governor of this region. We looked at Felix and then Festus. This is also where Pontius Pilate operated out of, and it's an incredible uh, place to visit. So he's before Felix. That's in chapter 24. Uh, Felix is replaced by Festus, the next uh, governor in chapter 25. And Remember, Festus suggests that he might be tried in Jerusalem, and Paul says, Paul begins to realize, I'm not getting a fair trial before any of these Roman governors, I know the Jews are lying wait to kill me. If I go back to Jerusalem, it's all over. So he plays his trump card and he appeals to Caesar with the right that he had as a Roman citizen. 
And um, when he appealed, by the way, Nero at that time wasn't the madman and tyrant that he became and the persecution of the Christians didn't really start until about 64 AD. So um, nevertheless, he appeals to Caesar and after some days we see that Agrippa comes to visit Festus. Agrippa is the Jewish king and he visits the new governor and after some days Festus says, i got something I want to tell you, maybe you can help me out. And um, he tells him about Paul, this Jew that he's got locked in the basement and maybe he could help him. This is King Agrippa, the Herodian uh, king. And if we just have another quick look at, let me see here, this family tree. We remember Herod's family tree is maybe not the most savory that you could find. Um, where we are. This is Herod Agrippa. This is the Herod of Acts 26 that we're looking at. And he had a sister, Bernice, and a sister, Drusilla. Drusilla is the sister who was married to Felix, the, first, the Roman governor of chapter 24. And Bernice, he notoriously had an incestuous relationship with her, though it was his sister. And their father was Herod Agrippa I. And um, and again, this Agrippa is, is known for killing James, uh, unleashing the persecution in Jerusalem uh, in chapter 12. It's the, it's the Herod uh, during which Peter was imprisoned, etc. And Herod's father was Aristobulus, but he had a brother, Herod Antipas, and it's that Herod who was the Herod who tried Christ, wanted to see Christ, and had... Uh, who would it have been? James uh, martyred also. And then, of course, his father, so Herod Agrippa II's great-grandfather, was Herod the Great who wanted to kill the infant Jesus right at the beginning. So we have this line of Herods. Uh, This is the first in the Herodian line, Herod the Great, and Herod Agrippa II will be the last in that Herodian line. So, uh, let's skip to verse 19. Uh, he's, he's explaining to Agrippa uh, what has happened, why this man is there under, and arrested. He speaks about the questions they had about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died and who Paul affirmed to be alive. And, of course, this was at the heart of Paul's all of his defenses, and of course, every time he preached and ministered, this was the center of it. And rightly so, that's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and rose again on the third day. And Agrippa said to Festus in verse 22, I would like to hear the man myself. So, and we noted that it's interesting that his grandfather also was interested to see see the Christ, to see the Messiah. When Jesus was brought before him and he had questions, but Jesus uh, did not answer to him. So a couple of generations later, we see Herod's grandson now wanting to see Paul the Apostle. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium, they bring in Paul. And this is where, where the stage is set. Uh, we imagine this this room. You've got the governor 
and you have uh, uh, King Agrippa and his wife, the, the royal robes, the pomp and ceremony, all of the commanders of which there were five in Caesarea that ruled over a thousand uh, soldiers each, and all of the officials all gathered for this event. Anyone who was anyone was there. And in shuffles, Paul the Apostle and stands before them, and all eyes are upon him. Festus sets the stage. He introduces, you like, introduces uh, Agrippa. And we, re- we just re- recap these verses in 24. Festus said, King Agrippa and all men who are here present with us, you see this man about who the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem, crying out he was not fit to live any longer. And you, that's echoed through these chapters that the Jews wanted him to be killed. They, they tried to ambush him to kill him. They tried to get the Romans to condemn him. They wanted to stone him in the temple again and again. This was their solution. He must be killed. And of course, uh, the governor didn't comply with that, but he said, you know, he'll be tried in Caesarea. And we, we, we looked at that. Verse, uh, yeah, verse 25 here. And when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. But this is the reason that Festus is most interested to have Agrippa, the Jewish king, have audience of Paul's hearing because Agrippa might be able to give him some insights. Remember, Festus is a Roman governor. He's not so acquainted somewhat, but with the ways of the Jews. He doesn't really understand their religious intricacies and the issues that they would have with with this case. But Agrippa, though he was raised in Rome, effectively, and, and though he was a puppet king, he was a Jew. And he was acquainted with the ways of the Jews. So Festus thought, listen, I have to send this guy to, to Caesar, and along with the prisoner has to go this report that explains why I'm sending him, and I can't quite put my finger on it. What is it that we can pin on this guy? What is it that he is guilty of? What crime has he committed? So Agrippa says, I'd like to hear him. So, and this brings us to uh, verse 1 of chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretches out his hand, and we imagine almost like an oratory gesture, you know, uh, and he he answers for himself. Um, Of course, it's not just answering, but there's a sense of, although this wasn't exactly a trial because he'd already been defaulted to, to stand before Caesar, it was a hearing. It was still a hearing and effectively a courtroom, And he was answering for himself, or if you like, making his defense. He could have had someone else do it, but he says, we're happy for you to answer for yourself, and Paul certainly was happy also. It makes us think of 1 Peter 3.15, where it says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Be ready to give an answer to anyone who would ask you of the hope that is in you. And the word there, given answer in the Greek, is apologia. It's where we get the word for apologetics, the defense of the faith. And that's the Greek word. Um, One of these Greek words is akin to that, or we get the, it's derived from that here. Yeah, apologiomai is when it says that he answered for himself. So he's going to give an apologetics, a defense 
uh, not just of himself, but of course the gospel. So in verse 2 he says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa. Uh, or the NIV says, I am fortunate to stand before you. And again, because Agrippa was a Jew. And Paul at least is thinking maybe there will be some more understanding before this king. I'm fortunate or happy because I will answer for myself before you concerning the things of which I am accused by the Jews. Especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. So he acknowledges Agrippa has some wisdom, some insights. Um, And he's saying, you know, this Roman governor here is looking to you for some insights, and I know that you probably have them, so I'm I'm happy to, to speak before you. So he says, please hear me patiently. And this is going to lead us into the third recorded uh, version of Paul's conversion story. And this is one of, of course, the other one was, what was it, 22? And this is 26, both of which were by Paul's own account. Acts 9 was by Luke, but, but they all beautifully mesh and complement each other, give, give some additional detail. So this will be the third one. And in this discourse, Paul makes four points. The first point he makes is that he was a Pharisee. In the strictest sense, he was a Pharisee. Which, And to any Jew who heard that, that was quite a credential to have. It was, it was basically saying that you were as serious and as fervent as you could get about your religion. You, you, it wasn't half-hearted or part-time. You were giving your life from childhood all the way up, all through your training, hours and hours of studying, etc., and disciplined life to say that you're a Pharisee is quite something. That's the first thing he says, I'm a, I'm a Pharisee. The second thing is he said, he, he goes into, because he was a Pharisee with such zeal, he persecutes the way or the church. He weaves that into this story before Agrippa as well. The third point is he says that now I am an apostle. And both of these are beautifully highlighted. I was a Pharisee, I was a persecutor, and I'm an apostle. What happened? And of course, he has to explain by his own testimony what happened. I met the risen Messiah. It's very powerful, very potent. So he begins in verse 4 here. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. Notice that. All the Jews know. He had a reputation. It was known that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees who was trained under Gamaliel, who was one of the most famous of all the rabbinical scholars and teachers in Jerusalem. His, his, he was, his nickname was the beauty of the law. And to be trained by Gamaliel would have been quite something, and that was what Paul could claim. He said, I had a reputation from my youth. Through the, through the words of Gamaliel and others, they looked at young Saul of Tarsus and said, this young man has potential. He is fervent. He is focused. He has an incredible mind, an incredible incredible capacity, and all the Jews knew this. Verse, verse 5, they knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. This is masterful, the way Paul does this. 
He says, okay, Agrippa and governor and all those who are gathered, let's, let's boil it right down to the reason I am standing before you today. Why? And he says it, he frames it this way. I am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. And the hope of the promise is a phrase that is referring specifically to the Messiah. The messianic hope that is instilled in the hearts of our believing fathers all the way through the ages, that is what I'm on trial for. Because I have believed that. Because I have experienced that. Central all to Jewish thinking and all through the prophets and prophecies and covenants is the expectation of the Messiah to come. So he says, to this promise, verse 7, are 12 tribes, and here again he's identifying with him as a Jew, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. So he's saying this again, this hope of the Messiah underpins everything. You, You take this away and it all falls apart. So much of what the Jewish hope and future and promises and covenants are looking to is the coming of a man, the Christ. He says, for this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. My hope is in the Messiah. And Jesus is the Messiah. And that's, of course, the real issue, even as it is today. It's quite something. You go to Jerusalem, you see these banners up, and it says the Messiah come quickly, and the Messiah is coming. And you're just thinking, he is coming, but he's already been once. It's quite something. This is the issue. Not, not that his hope was in the Messiah, but he made the claims that the Messiah had come, the Messiah had died, and the Messiah was risen again, and his name was Jesus. And this was his claim. And he says in verse 8, Why should it be thought incredible by you that God would raise the dead? Now he will explain how his own views change. He identifies with Agrippa, and he, he kind of goes back in time a bit before his conversion. He says, listen, I sat where you sat. There was a time when I completely was in opposition to this. So much so, I was persecuting the church. I completely refuted the idea that Jesus was the Messiah, and especially refuted the idea that he had risen from the dead. I understand King Agrippa. So, he says here in verse uh, verse 8, verse 9, sorry. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. So he looks back 25 plus years ago when he was on that road to Damascus. And I was looking to, to completely oppose it. And he goes into the story of Saul of Tarsus becoming the Apostle Paul. An incredible story that echoes through time and through the pages of script, the New Testament and serves as the most powerful of all examples of changing grace in a person's life. In fact, 1 Timothy, and there's a few other places where Paul's testimony is included in his epistles. One of them is 1 Timothy 1. 
where he says, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And of course, that's us here tonight. That's all of us in the 21st century. This is a pattern, a model, an example for us to say, oh, if grace could find Saul of Tarsus, and not only that, but bring him to be the Apostle Paul, it's, there's hope for everyone and anyone. So he continues in verse 10. And this I did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison. And having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So this is the persecution in Jerusalem. Remember Stephen being stoned in Acts 7. It goes right into the persecution in chapter 8. And Paul is at the helm. Paul is leading it. And it says, notice that, um, uh, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So it wasn't only that people were being imprisoned and beaten and persecuted, but they were being killed. They were being martyred. Stephen was the first, but there were many others that followed. It says it there, plural. And when they were put to death, I was right there giving my consent. So he was a, a murderer, uh, in, 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 in many cases. And verse uh, 11 says, And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And I, I had to take pause when I came to that and just thought, wow, I wonder what that would have meant. I compelled them to blaspheme. And if they didn't blaspheme, they were martyred. But many of them, we forced them, we tortured them. And he uses the word blaspheme, of course, because now he's a believer in Christ. But So from that perspective, I caused them to blaspheme and deny Christ. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In other words, I wasn't just satisfied with persecuting them and killing them and torturing them in Jerusalem. I wasn't just satisfied that we drove them out to the surrounding cities, but I would hunt them down. I would even go and get official letters from the chief priests giving the authority for me to go to Damascus and bring them back bound to persecute them. And while I was occupied in doing this, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king. And again, we, we allow ourselves to quickly reflect back to the setting. The king, the governors, all the people, and Paul standing in the midst, and he's addressing the king. O king, at midday along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. He notes the time. Because it's significant. At midday, the most, the brightest time of the day, and yet there was a light that appeared that was brighter than the very sun itself, shone around me and all those who journeyed with me. So, 
Of course, we know Agrippa being a Jew, uh, being having certain responsibilities over Jerusalem and the priests, etc., would have been very well acquainted with this story, or at least acquainted with this story of the Pharisee Saul of Tarsus who was converted and is now a, you know, a leader in the way. This is 25 years on when Christian churches are springing up all through the, all through the land and beyond into Europe, etc. He is, he is known. He has a reputation. So Agrippa would know this. But now stands before him Paul giving his own account and his own testimony. He says... At midday, and then at verse 14, and when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And of course, this analogy here, this picture is, was very graphic. Paul knew what it meant. The, the goats, the, the, of the of the ox to her he wants to go one way but the goads to want him to go to another way and the lord says oh it's 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 difficult for you Saul it's not difficult for me it's hard for you to kick against the goads and what does it mean it means and this is very insightful when you think about people who who whatever claim to be atheists or seem to resist the gospel Paul is quite revealing here, and and what Jesus says to him is revealing, that he was kicking against the goats. There was an initiation, a conviction, a work going on in the heart of Saul, and he was resisting it. If you go back to Acts 7, when they are just about to stone Stephen, when Stephen is preaching, and we can only imagine the anointing and the authority and the clarity of the gospel in that moment and how it stirred up their hearts. They're gnashing their teeth. They wanted to kill him. And one of the things Stephen says is he says to that crowd of which Saul of Tarsus was there, he says, you resist the Holy Spirit like your fathers did. There was a resistance to the Holy Spirit. And this is what it's referring to here. You kick against the goads. There's something in you, there's a conviction that you are resisting. And in verse 15, he asks the obvious question, who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for us to imagine what what a paradigm shift this would have been. What, 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 the, the bottom fell out. Everything that he believed, the direct, everything that he stood for and had such passion about, everything, all of his energies and his, oh, all of a sudden, on that name, everything changed. It is Jesus whom you persecute. And then Jesus gives him his commission Jesus doesn't appear to condemn him, but he commissions him. Such grace that he would be a vessel of grace. Verse 16, rise up and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of these things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. Now, again, we don't lose the context as we remember this. He's speaking before Agrippa. This is his account before Agrippa. And he's relaying to Agrippa, listen, this is my story. I'm just laying it out exactly as it happened. This is what happened. Jesus, I met him. He spoke to me. He commissioned me out of the blue. And this is what he said. He says, you will be a minister and a witness 
of the things that you have seen, and note this phrase, and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. So it tells us there are further revelations to come, an abundance of revelations, in fact, to come to the Apostle Paul. Another place in the epistles where Paul's testimony is referred to is in Galatians 1, where Paul says, You have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to see Peter. So when you put this together, it tells us what happens. happened. On the road to Damascus, he's converted. He goes to Damascus where he is baptized and he begins to preach immediately. And then before he goes to Jerusalem to meet or get confirmation of the apostles, he goes to Arabia for three years. After Arabia, he comes back to Damascus where they want to kill him and they lower him in a basket and he escapes, and then he goes to Jerusalem, and he finally meets Peter, etc. But he's been a believer for three years by then, and, and obviously we say, well, what happened in Arabia? And of course, we conclude that this is the time that God gave him the abundance of revelations, the things that would yet appear to him. Uh, this was where, um, where he, would, um, he would be given an understanding and an illumination on these incredible truths that echo all through his letters. The truths about grace, about salvation, about the body of Christ, about the cross, about our calling, about our sanctification. All of the doctrines and truths that echo through the epistles in in Arabia, uh, there would have been an abundance of revelations that he received. So also, if you go back to Acts 9, again, this is going back to the first account of his conversion. He says, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogue. So he's converted on the road to Damascus. He gets to Damascus. He's baptized. He meets the disciples. And immediately he's in the synagogues and he's preaching. And all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the very Christ. Now after many days were passed, now right there, is where we interject the three years in Arabia that Galatians speaks about. Right there where it says, now after many days were passed. Those many days includes the three years in Arabia. The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They watched the gates day and night to kill him. And then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And then Saul came to Jerusalem. Imagine that picture (laughs) They're lowering him down in a basket over the wall. 
And here is, here is the, you know, the, the great soul of Tarsus, you know, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he leaves Jerusalem, uh, Damascus in a very different way than he anticipated. He leaves in a basket, being held by the ones who he who wanted to bind and kill and wipe out. And now he's in their very hands and they're lowering him down over the wall. And when it hits the bottom, he hightails it to Jerusalem to meet Peter and the others. But in the middle of that is these, these three years in Arabia. And that takes us back, if we skip back now to this testimony, where he's saying to Agrippa, where it says, of these things which I will yet reveal to you. And that's what happened in Arabia. You may consider also 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul says uh, he speaks about himself, but he's referring to a man speaking about himself, who was caught up into the third heaven, who heard unspeakable words that it's not lawful for a man to utter. He was caught up into the very throne room of God and got revelations of God's grace. Um, and, and I believe that ties into this same period as well. Uh, take, take that if you will. So the next verse, he continues and says, uh, um, he's, he's relaying to Agrippa what Jesus said to him that night, that I will make you a minister and a witness I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. And that might have uh, been received quite well in that courtroom that day with all the Gentiles thinking, oh, that's good, sent to the Gentiles. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's quite something. In that verse, the gospel is beautifully and very clearly framed. This was at the very heart of his address. As he, as he, as he shuffled into that courtroom before all of those watchful eyes and before the throne of the king, this was in his heart. Or oh, they want to hear my, my, they want to hear what I have to say. They want me to make a defense. Oh, I, will, I have something to say. He's been waiting two years because of Felix in that, in that cell in Caesarea, and now he gets his audience. Oh, I've been, I've been preparing for this. And certainly he's leading up to this definitive moment where the gospel is beautifully framed. From his own testimony where Jesus says, this, this is why I'm setting you apart, that you would be a minister and a witness of all the things that you have seen and will see to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified. And notice these last words, by faith in me. Always at the heart of Paul's message, justification by faith. And then he, in this, in this packed out, no doubt, silent room, where perhaps his, his, his words are echoing in the silence, he now addresses it in the most specific way he speaks directly to the king. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In other words, listen, 
I'm just, I'm just laying it out. I, I cannot tell you with more clarity or transparency, with the most purest of conscience, I am telling you what happened. I wasn't sitting in some Christian Bible study somewhere where they were going through the prophecies. I wasn't seeking Jesus. I wasn't looking for I was on the road to persecute Christians. And he met me. And what, what was I to do, King Agrippa? I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision. My life became submitted to him. To do his will became my desire to follow him, to know him, to represent him, to be an ambassador for him on the earth. Oh, that is what, that was the new mantra of my life. That was my calling. I wasn't disobedient, but I was obedient I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles, and of course that captures the the missionary journeys that we've studied together, that they should repent and turn to God and do the works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. For what reasons? Again, that Jesus is proclaimed to be the Messiah, but also this word. This was also a major issue. Not only that Jesus was the Messiah and the claim that he had died and risen again, but also that he was extending the promises uh, to the Gentiles. We remember if we go back in time to chapter twenty. Two, when he's addressing that mob in the courtyard, and remember the commander doesn't understand what's happening, he's listening, and when Paul gets to the word Gentiles, interestingly enough, not the word Jesus, but it's when he gets to the word Gentiles, they're like, okay, that's it, and they want to kill him for that. So that's certainly tied in there as well. For these reasons, Jesus, the Messiah, the resurrection, and the promise to the Gentiles, they wanted to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, and we could pause there for a moment, because all through the book of Acts thus far, we've seen, we've seen these little phrases, like they seem to be like dotted all, all the, and the Jews wanted to kill him, and the Jews wanted to seize him, and all the way through. And we would marvel, because we're not talking about a few weeks or a few months, we're talking about years of his ministry and his missionary journeys. And certainly we would have to put that in in bright lights and say, by the help of God, he has survived to this day. How else could you explain it? With so much vehement desire and opposition against him, uh, with the plotting and the scheming and the lies and the ambush and all of this, and yet here he is, in Philemon 1.9, Paul refers to himself as Paul the aged. Now he's an old man. He's in his 60s. He's, a, he's been through so much. And this old man, as far as we understand, in chains in this courtroom, is saying, you know what? God has kept me all through these years to this very day. As a witness. I've been witnessing from that day, King Agrippa. 
From the day I met him on the road to Damascus, I've been witnessing of him all these years. And you know what? I'm witnessing of him again today, right now to you. This is what he means. I love this. He puts this here. To this day I stand witnessing both to small and great. And it doesn't really matter if people think they're small or great. It doesn't matter to me. I'll preach to anyone. And that reminded me of this story. I remember when I was a new believer, I saw this little little column in the Daily Mail. And it was a story about Princess Diana. She came out of a store somewhere in London and, and there was the security and the cars and the, and the, uh, you know, the, the railings and the, the crowd was there waving, oh, Princess Diana. And all of a sudden, as she was greeting people, she found herself face to face with this guy on the other side of the railing and they had a few minutes exchange. And the cameras are going and the press is there and she, she leaves and they go up to him and they say, what did you say to Princess Diana? And he said, well, I'm a Christian. And I knew that this was a, an incredible opportunity I had that I could share the gospel with her. So I told her how much God loves her, that Jesus died for her sins. And if she believed in him, she could be saved. And they said, wow, you, you said that to Princess Diana? And this is what he said. He says, he said, 15 minutes before, I was on a bus sitting next to a little old lady on the bus. And I shared the gospel with her also. And it's the same to me. It's the same to me. Beautiful, beautiful story. I have shared with the small and the great, saying no other things. And here he says again, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. I've not said anything that contradicts the promises of all of the prophets that saying that the Messiah would come, that the Messiah would actually fulfill those prophecies. So, Verse. Oh, by the way, it's worth noting, this is just jumping back to Acts 9 again. When he was in Damascus, it says he confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus. Notice this, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Proving. They're very strong Greek words. Also in 17, when he's in Thessalonica, in the synagogues again, explaining and demonstrating. These are very strong, persuasive words. In other words, setting forth the clear evidence for anyone who wants to weigh the evidence and let it lead, lead you where it will, Paul laid out the prophecies the Old Testament prophets had, had given and was able to prove, demonstrate, explain that this Jesus is the Messiah and that he had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And what was it that the prophets predicted? He's, he's, he's going somewhere. Listen, this is what happened to me. This is why I'm on trial, because I proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, that he died, that he rose again, that, he, that the gospel is to all Jews and all Gentiles. And I haven't said anything that the prophets would contradict me in, because I have said all that they have predicted. And what did they predict, O King Agrippa, that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Read Isaiah, King Agrippa. 
Read, read um, Micah. Read Jeremiah. Read through the prophets. And read the predictions about he will be a light unto the Gentiles, the Messiah. And now as he has thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Now what's incredible about this moment is we can imagine as far as this is the longest of all Paul's addresses out of the five main addresses that he has. This is the longest one. Perhaps with the biggest audience. And we would imagine it was completely silent, if nothing else, respect for the king who was listening to the hearing. But at this moment, there seems to be this impulsive interruption by Festus, the governor. Guys, okay, okay, enough. <laughs> what, you're, you're mad. You, 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 you're well, a well-educated man, but all your learning, you're, you're crazy because of all your learning. You're making these claims. Now, of course, Romans certainly didn't believe in a resurrection. They, didn't be, they, they believed in an immortality of the spirit, but not a resurrection. And Paul is making these claims about a man called Jesus who died and rose again, and now he's living. And, you know, he finally says it's enough. I, I can't hear any more. It seems as though it's an interruption. It could be that Paul had almost said what he was about to say, but nevertheless, he interrupts. And when I read this, I couldn't help think of all the times I remember being in a place where you're sharing the gospel with someone. It could be street preaching or one-on-one or a certain a camp or somewhere, and the anointing is there. And you know that the Spirit of God is speaking and drawing, and there are certain ones that God has appointed for that day. And then all of a sudden, there's a Festus who wants to interrupt I remember we were sharing with this teenage girl on this, on, in Moskvater in Budapest on Saturday morning and we'd be sharing the gospel with her and we'd be leading her to the faith and she'd be asking questions and you'd be getting to the point where she... And then all of a sudden her boyfriend shows up. What's this guy? Oh, yeah, let's get out of here. Oh, and then we're like, oh. You wonder what spiritual warfare is involved there. But nevertheless, Festus interrupted. But Paul doesn't, doesn't cower in the face of this, but he punches right back. Notice this. Verse 25, Paul immediately responds and says, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. It's a beautiful Greek word, this word reason. Or depending on your translation, you may have uh, soberness or or to be sound of mind. The word is sophrosune. It's where we get the derivative sophia, or wisdom. I'm not mad, but actually I'm speaking words of incredible rational wisdom, and I speak from a sound mind, or gripper. Wisdom from a sound mind, that's the word he uses. Verse 26, for the king... In other words, Festus, I'm not crazy. I'm speaking from a sound mind and I'm speaking reasonable words of truth and the king knows what I'm talking about. I'm really addressing him, so shh. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. What thing? 
course, we're speaking about the, the death, the burial, the resurrection. We're speaking about Pentecost, the birth of the church. We're talking about Christianity in the sense that this is not, this is not like a corner thing. The, the King Agrippa, the Jewish king, would know this. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just, oh, just another person that was crucified. No, this, this had a great significance. This was front-page news. If you remember in Luke 24, I don't think, oh, I did put it up there, yeah. Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And when Jesus comes alongside and kind of toying with them, he says, oh, what are you guys talking about? And he says, are you a stranger in Jerusalem? Have you not known these things, what happened in these days? And he says, what things? They say the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Everyone knows it. You must be a foreigner from another planet who's just arrived if you don't know this. And this is what Paul says. This wasn't done in a corner. Agrippa knows all about this. Go back to Acts 6, these last few verses. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? So he responds to Festus. He puts him in his place. The king knows, and then he goes right back to King Agrippa, right where his heart is no doubt being addressed by the Lord. What he does with that is, is what he does. But no doubt this is an opportunity for Agrippa. Just as Festus had his opportunity, who, by the way, dies about two years after this. Just as Felix had his opportunity. Just as Drusilla, who dies at the Pompeii eruption 19 years later. Just as all of these have their moment, their opportunity to respond. And Agrippa says, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now, this is a famous line, but the translation here maybe isn't the best. The better one would be this. Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? In other words, if he said, oh yes, I believe the prophets, or if he said, no, I don't believe the prophets, both of them would have got him into trouble. Because he's the Jewish king, he appoints the high priests and the priests in Jerusalem. He, you know, he, he, can't, he, he can't show that he agrees or he can't show that he doesn't believe the prophets, so he just kind of deflects it and what he's is a little bit of a mockery here he's saying do you think that you can persuade me in just such a short time it does though kind of imply that there is some type of persuasion that is in process so there's nothing wrong with the idea that you almost persuade me we don't know what the almost is what what was the hindrance what is the hindrance in your heart Agrippa that you wouldn't believe and that's the question, really, he's left with. So, he says, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And then Paul says, oh, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Oh, I wish you would become a Christian, Agrippa. I wish, in fact, you were the governor and the governor's wife and all of those in this room. I wish you would all become Christians. I wish you would all be exactly as I am, but apart from these chains. Because even though I have these chains, really, I'm the free man here. Even though I'm, I'm here in my rags of two years being in the prison, I, I'm the rich man here. 
I'm the, I'm the one, I'm really royalty. I'm a son of the Most High God. Oh, I wish you could all be as I am. That beautiful desire in the heart of a Christian certainly should be echoing through the heart of every spirit-filled Christian, with everyone that we see, that we would say, oh, that they would be as I am. Okay, without my, you know, you could list the things that you wouldn't want them to have that is in your life, but you would want them to have what you have in the Lord, certainly. Like the little maid in the story of Naaman. Oh, I would to God that he would go to Israel and he would meet with Elisha, he could be healed. Oh, would to God that my friend in school or in college or my wife's sister or whoever, oh, that that person or anyone we meet at the bus stop, to have that desire, whether it's Princess Diana or the old lady on the bus, oh, I wish they could have what I have. For I know Christ has salvation. When he had said these things, the king stood up, which basically means it's all that's all that's all it's over when the king stands up everyone stands up and it's the end of the meeting the proceedings are over no one else is going to say anything and governor and bernice and those who sat with them stood up and then when they had gone aside they talked among themselves saying this man is doing nothing deserving death or chains okay according to festus and others perhaps he's a bit mad a bit fanatical bit crazy, his claims and beliefs, whatever, but he's done nothing that deserves death or chains. He's broken no laws, no crimes. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And this is how Luke crowns this chapter with this declaration that that Paul, there was no crime, no nothing really that Paul was guilty of, except preaching the very gospel that all of the prophets of old had predicted would, would come to pass. And he just presented it in all clarity that it was Jesus who had died, risen again, extending the promise of the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles alike. And this sets us up for chapter 27, which is now they put him on a ship and he starts heading over to Rome and there's a shipwreck and the whole adventure and story that goes with that, which we'll look at next time. So um, I don't know if anyone has any follow-up questions or comments uh, on any of that. Feel free.